0: can turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. So as Steve mentioned three weeks ago, of course, we had finished uh, chapter 7 with uh, the life of Stephen. So we are picking it up today in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 as we now begin to follow the life of Philip. So let's begin by reading in Acts chapter 8, we'll read about half the chapter, the first 25 verses together to sort of get our bearings before we jump into the scriptures. So let's pick it up there. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At, a time, at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles, And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city And astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come down prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit." But Peter said to him, Your money perished with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many of the villages of the Samaritans. Lord, may you add your blessing to the reading of your word. May you be our teacher and our guide as we look at it together. And may you instruct us and may our hearts and our minds be open and willing to receive all that you might have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. If you look back just a few verses, in chapter 7, as Philip had been stoned and put to death, it says there, let me find it here, in verse 58, And they cast him out of the city and stoned him, And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. So we see there that Saul was, of course, present at the Sermon of Stephen. In fact, if you were to carefully read and and think about the Sermon of Stephen and then go read the epistles that Paul wrote, you will see a lot of the themes that Stephen preached uh, mentioned in Paul's letters. So clearly, Stephen's sermon was very impactful for this man, Saul of Tarsus. So in verse 1 here of chapter 8, it says, now Saul was consenting to his death. That means that Saul was in hearty agreement with the death of Stephen. And at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So we have an interesting thing going on here. The preaching of the word is going on. The apostles are there in Jerusalem doing what God had called them to do as they're trying to figure out what God's doing and and respond to it and administrate the church and you know preach the word and and disciple people. And there's house churches popping up everywhere. People are getting saved all the time. And then we saw in chapter six that they were having a dispute with the Hellenists, the Hellenistic Jews, the Greek speaking Jews. And in that portion of Scripture, we learned from those uh, first or those proto-deacons being appointed that they were uh, seven men, uh, they were of Greek origin, they were, they were Hellenists themselves, and the requirement was simple for them to be able to serve and to wait on tables, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be filled with wisdom, to be men who were just given over to God. And so as we studied that, we saw how God used them and why they had to be filled with the Holy Spirit in order to serve tables and the importance behind that and really the importance of being filled with the Spirit anytime we do anything, especially if we're doing it in the name of the Lord. So now we find that the church there in Jerusalem is getting persecuted and it says, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So now we see two of these proto-deacons being raised up. We saw um, Stephen and what happened to him as God just began to work through his life in a mighty way. And all of a sudden he was raised up to be this mighty preacher and he did what God called him to do and filled his heart to do. And of course it ended in his demise. It ended in his death as he was stoned and, and brutally killed there at the hands and at the feet of Saul of Tarsus. So we're also told that as this church was being persecuted, it says they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So now the believers are being scattered. And notice what's happening as God is allowing the church to be pressured so that it can grow. Remember in the beginning at Acts chapter 1, the Lord himself spoke and he said, Wait until you have received the Holy Spirit. And when you have been endued from power, uh, from, with power from on high, you will then go out and, and you will serve Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So that's what Jesus said, right? But up to this point in time, the gospel had gone nowhere but to Jerusalem, except perhaps those people who had gotten saved on the day of Pentecost and subsequently perhaps as they went back to their homes. But now it would seem that the Lord saw fit to allow a little persecution to come in in order to scatter people. So in other words, think of it like this. God is allowing the persecution to be used sort of like the wind that scatters the seed. And so when we look at these things, we look at persecution, often we look at it and we say, oh, this is a terrible thing. From a human point of view, perhaps. But from God's divine point of view, he uses persecution to serve his purposes, does he not? And he causes people who were otherwise comfortable where they were, doing what they were doing, to all of a sudden have to uproot their lives and go somewhere else. And God often does this for you and me, He does this for His people. And sometimes we look at that and we think that's a bad thing because our comfort is being disturbed. Because we are being called out from where we are just, man, I'm just enjoying life here. I like getting up every day, doing what I do. I have my routine. I go through all these things. I know where everything is. Everything's in order in my life. I stop at the same gas station all the time. All those things. And now the Lord has disrupted their lives through this persecution. And so it's interesting to me that this word scattered... There's two different words in the ancient Greek language for the idea of scattered. One is the idea of scattered in the sense of making something disappear, like scattering someone's ashes if you were pouring them on the ocean or something like that. And the other word has the idea of scattering in the sense of planting or sowing seeds. And that's exactly what the word that is used here. So God has allowed and in a sense caused this persecution to come upon the church. And notice what it said there. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So remember the Lord said, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. So God is forcing his plan to take shape. In verse 2, And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. That seems like an interesting piece of information, except when someone died of natural causes in the Jewish community, there would be a procession of mourning. But when someone was executed, as Stephen was, and from their point of view, he was executed because he was causing a religious insurrection in the way that he had preached and spoken against the leaders of Israel, they executed him through stoning. And a person who was executed was not allowed to be publicly mourned. So these devout men carrying Stephen to his burial and making great lamentations suggest to us that these men perhaps heeded. They they realized what Stephen had preached was true, and they were lamenting and mourning over the fact that they had just killed someone who was essentially a prophet of Jesus, someone who had spoken words of truth to them. So they made this great loud lamentation over him. Verse 3 says, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. So now Saul is just enraged. And this word here where it says havoc is a word used of a wild animal just tearing at the flesh of its prey. So if you can visualize that in your mind, I know it's not a very pleasant thing to visualize, but an animal just tearing apart like fresh meat, just like ripping it and shredding it and making all those noises. That's the idea behind the anger and the vehemence with which Saul was attacking the church. And notice it said he was entering every house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. So in that day, of course, there was no organized church like we have today. They weren't meeting in a central building. They were meeting in homes. And so Paul, excuse me, Saul had organized this 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 team, if you will, and they were going through and clearing the houses and finding out where the believers were meeting and coming in and dragging off men and women, and their desire was to cause them to recant, to consider their their voiced commitment to Jesus Christ, and to attack them, to cause them to turn back. They felt that they had betrayed Israel, that they had betrayed Judaism, and that they were caught up in false doctrine. They were listening to false prophets. And so they were attacking everyone who had believed in Christ. Notice it says, committing them to prison. Think about that. We've heard about this throughout history, haven't we? The underground church in China, in places such as the Middle East, once people believe they have to meet underground, they have to be secretive in the the way they meet and worship the Lord. And Saul here is, is doing to them something that is carried through to this very day in the way people and house churches are being attacked for their faith. But verse 4 says, therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Isn't it interesting that rather than just packing up their stuff and heading for the hills and being scattered and having to find somewhere else to go that had less pressure about their faith than where they were? As they went, no one gave them instruction. No one said, hey, okay, as you guys are getting scattered, here's your marching orders. Do you understand that the, the the Lord himself gave them their marching orders? No one had to tell them what to do. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. We find a very similar thing at the end of gospel, the gospel of Mark in Mark 16 After Jesus had been resurrected, and he spoke to his disciples, and then he was ascended in Mark 16, verse 19, so then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. Same thing's happening here, isn't it? Those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Now you might say, wait a minute, what were their spiritual gifts? Were were they preachers? I don't think so. They were just ordinary people like you and me. So imagine if someone came into your home now and they said, are you a Christian? And they began to attack you, but somehow you escaped. And you're fleeing for your life, and you're going wherever you're going, just trying to find a place to go. Let's just say, in our context, you you go somewhere, you find a hotel, maybe you're going to go stay with relatives in another state or something. you know. And, And as you're doing that, as you're going, you're interacting with the hotel clerk, you're interacting with the people, the wait people in the restaurants, you're interacting with the people at the gas station or wherever you stop to get food and water. And all along the way, you're saying to people, as you encounter them, Have you met Jesus? Have you heard about him? And that's what these people are doing. They are speaking of Christ everywhere they go. Now, we could ask the question and I think it begs to be asked this morning. Is that what it's gonna take for us to speak of Christ? Is, Is the Lord going to have to bring persecution into my life and into your life to get us to the place that we will speak of him? Are we, and again, this begs the question in my mind, are we ashamed of Christ or are we in love with him? And have our lives been changed and transformed by the blood of Christ? Have we truly been forgiven of our sin? You see, these people had no problem speaking of that, even if it meant more trouble where they had been scattered to. Then we find in verse 5, then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Now remember Samaria, John chapter 4, Jesus had taken the disciples through the city of Samaria, who were the Samaritans. These were people who during uh, the, the northern uh, part of, the, of Israel, when they had been taken captive by the Assyrians through that whole process. Uh, foreign people had come into Samaria as well as the people who had been taken away to Assyria and had intermingled and intermarried with the Jews there. Now it was through no fault of their own that the intermarrying took place. But because they now were in in many respects viewed as being half-breeds or being poisoned Jews, the Samaritans were regarded by the pure Jews as people who were not worth the, the flames of hell. They they were worse than Gentiles. Remember, the Jews thought of Gentiles as firewood for the flames of hell. They thought of Samaritans as worse than that. And remember when Jesus went through there in John four, and he met the woman at the well. uh, Remember there was that interaction with him. You can go back and read that on your own. And you know this lady is discussing with Jesus what's going on. And you you know we like to worship the same God you worship. We just do it differently. We have our own temple. We have our own place. You know, we, we can't go to Jerusalem. You guys won't let us come there. So we had to do our own thing here. And as Jesus was interacting with her, of course, she believed in Christ. And then she went and told everyone in the city, come and, come and see, meet the man who told me everything that I've ever done in my life. So Jesus himself was the first one to bring the gospel to the Samaritans. And now Philip, we're not told that he got a word from the Lord or anything. But remember, we're told that Philip was a spirit-filled man. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Perhaps Philip knew the words of Acts 1, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. So Philip on his own just decides to go down to Samaria and it says he preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. So the word heeded means that they not only listened and paid attention and gave it consideration, but that they believed it. They grabbed a hold of what he said. So they, they heeded the things spoken by Philip. Philip was doing miracles. God was working through Philip in a powerful way. For unclean spirits, crying out with, with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed, and the lame were healed. So you can imagine... If you have people like that in your town or your city and you know them and your heart's broken for them as you see them, maybe you don't even know they're demon-possessed. All you know is that there's something crazy going on in their lives. You probably think they're crazy. And you've got people who are lame, who are paralyzed. And he's just doing what Jesus did. The Spirit is working through him, healing people, delivering people from satanic possession. And it says, and there was great joy in that city. And aren't we told in Galatians chapter 5 as we read about the gifts, or excuse me, the, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. There we read the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy. And here we see joy through the work of the Holy Spirit in this city. There was great joy in that city. So God was working, God was moving. And I believe wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, The Word tells us wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, but also wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, the fruit of the Spirit is evident. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These things are qualities. They are the byproduct. They are the fruit of the presence of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. Again, are these things... Evident in our lives? Are they evident to us? Are they evident to those whom we live with? Verse 9, but there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great to whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. So here's the contrast. Philip walks into the city, preaches Christ. He brings the spirit of God. He brings the word of God. And these amazing things happen. And all of a sudden there's a turn. The climate in the city changes as a result of Philip just going down to Samaria and deciding to preach Christ to them. But the contrast is, there's another man there whom they have been heeding for a long time, this man Simon the sorcerer. So let's take a moment and just talk about him. Whenever we talk about the word sorcery, whenever you see that in your Bible, the Greek word behind it is the word pharmakia. Sound familiar? Pharmaceuticals. Now, it doesn't mean all drugs are bad. But the idea here is that these magicians, these sorcerers, would take chemicals and mix them together to have mind-altering or mood-altering effects on people so that they could go into trances, they could get high, and they could worship their gods and do these bizarre things that we read about in the Old Testament from people who practiced sorceries. So, He practiced these mind-altering medications. He gave them to people. In essence, a sorcerer was what we could call today perhaps a drug dealer. But they also performed magic. They were illusionists. They did all these things. The people were astonished with him and with what he had done with his sorceries for a long time. This man had a great influence upon the people. But when they believed Philip, verse 12, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. People were getting saved. They were were believing. They were becoming converted. And they were being baptized there on the spot. Philip baptizing them. And then Simon himself also believed. Praise God. This man, this influential man, had been converted. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and the signs which were done. So you can imagine that this man, Simon, who had been caught up in the occult and done all these things for many years, naturally he would be enamored with the miracles that Philip was doing. But we'll find out very shortly that Simon, if indeed he was a believer, and I believe he was, but that he was a very misguided person as he had believed and gotten baptized, that there was sort of an incomplete transformation. He never really got his head straight about the things of God. Verse 14, Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word, the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. So now we have an interesting thing about to happen here, you may recall back in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus had made this sort of puzzling statement to the then disciples before they were apostles. And he had talked to them about how he was going to give them authority, authority to loose and to bind. And we often read that and we wonder, what does it mean? Well, I think what we're going to find out is right now, this is the kind of authority and power that Jesus gave the apostles. So, you know, why wasn't Philip able to do the things that the apostles are doing? Well, Philip was not an apostle, but he was a spirit-filled believer, and certainly God used him powerfully. But now the apostles are being sent down. Verse 15, who when they had come down, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet he had fallen upon none of them that they uh, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. You know, people wonder, what does this thing mean? Is this a part of the practice that we have in the church today? Or is it just, some, just something that God was doing then, but that he doesn't do now? Remember, if you will, and you can go back and listen to our studies in chapter one and chapter two of Acts, that there's these three prepositions that are used to describe our relationship with the Holy Spirit: with, um, in and upon. And Jesus said, uh, "When I go away, the Spirit who is with you will come to be in you, and then on the day of Pentecost He will come upon you." So here we have a situation. Now, and I think the scriptures clearly teach that when anyone believes in Christ, we are indwelt immediately with the Holy Spirit. So we have the presence of the Spirit in our lives. But there is this pattern here, and it's done a little bit differently almost every time, of someone coming along, praying for them, laying hands on them. One time we'll find out that Peter in Acts 10, as he is there uh, dealing with Cornelius' house, he walks into the house, starts to speak, and the Spirit just fell upon them. So one time, like this, there's people laying their hands on and receiving the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands. Other times, they're just receiving the Holy Spirit, meaning the, the coming upon of the Spirit, the empowering of the Spirit in a different way. And I think what this points to is this. We have the indwelling of the Spirit. Every believer has that. But there seems to be this situation where not every believer has the fullness or the power of the Spirit. And perhaps you've run into people, you've encountered them, people who are just, there's something different about them. They're just filled with the Spirit. And it's like everywhere they go and the things they do, God's blessing their work, blessing their ministry. And so the the apostles come and they they come and they see these believers and they pray for them and they lay hands on them. They receive the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the Spirit. The Spirit comes upon them. And some people say, "Well, well, why the apostles? Well, there's a few things. One, I think they needed to validate what was happening. Number two, Remember, back in Acts chapter 5, we saw that the the enemy, Satan, was coming in and trying to bring division to the church. And I think the apostles coming from Jerusalem to Samaria, to this hated place by the Jews, a place where there was, you know, bigotry and, and there was discrimination against these people. The apostles coming and saying, they are truly believers They've believed, they've been baptized, and they've received the the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And so the apostles, in a sense, validating them and bringing unity to the church, going back to Jerusalem and saying, Hey, we now have a whole group of brothers and sisters over in Samaria. Imagine that. Remember when Jesus took us through there? Isn't that crazy? Who would have thought that there was going to be a Spirit-filled church in Samaria? And so the apostles doing this, God giving credence to what was happening, sort of validating and blessing the ministry of Philip. Verse 18, and when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money. So he sort of fell back on what he knew. This is what they did in the black arts. If someone had a potion or a spell or a trick or an illusion, the way you get access to that is you pay them and they share with you the secret, So in a sense, Simon is just acting in the flesh here, and he's coming and saying, okay, how much does it cost to get that? I'd like to do that. That looks really cool. Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. See, in a sense, you could look at it and say, maybe his heart was in the right place in the sense that he wanted to do something for people, but in the past, because of all this power that had been given to him and all this, this notoriety. And people said, he's the great power of God. There's also something not right in that he probably wanted that for himself. He was craving and missing what he had before, which was the recognition. So Peter said to him, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Now Peter's being given a gift of discernment here. We saw this exercised back in Acts chapter 5, didn't we? As Ananias and Sapphira came. God had given him a word of knowledge, a word of wisdom about the situation. And here, Peter having that same spiritual gifting and just that discernment and understanding of what's happening here, and he's seeing into the heart of Simon. And notice what he says here in verse 22. Repent therefore of this your wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. Remember with Ananias and Sapphira, not so forgiving, right? But here with Simon, he sees that there's something going on in this man's heart and he calls him out in verse 23. He calls out the root of the sin. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. I don't know if you've ever had someone do this to you. I have. Someone who's filled with the Spirit and maybe just has that gift of discernment and the Lord gives them just this insight, you know, word of wisdom, word of knowledge about your life, things that no one else knows. It's very unnerving but very necessary, because if if we want God to work in our lives, either the Word of God has got to do this, and the conviction of the Spirit, or God's going to have to bring it through someone else. And when that happens, and it has happened to me on a number of occasions, it is a very humbling thing. I remember this time many many years ago, before I was a pastor. Uh, A church we were attending there was a lady who had sort of this this gifting and she had given me a piece of paper and she said you know for what it's worth you know as I was praying and reading the word this scripture came to mind I just felt like the Lord was saying it was for you and she wrote down some little things you know that she felt like the Lord was speaking to her to give to me now my position's always kind of been like you know if the Lord wants to speak to me he'll speak to me But as I read what the Lord had had given to this lady on this piece of paper, and I read the scripture, and I read the thoughts that she had written down, it was like bullseye. It was like, man, reading my mail. And it was very unnerving, but but I knew what, what was there was true. And the point wasn't her, it wasn't the instrument through whom God had given it. But, you know, it was my thick head and my hard heart. And he had to use that method to get to me to get my attention. And so here, Peter is being used of the Holy Spirit to speak to this man, Simon, in a very direct way, calling out his sin, the Spirit zeroing in and saying, you have bitterness in your heart. You're bound by iniquity. I know you say you were saved. I know you believed. I know you got baptized, but but something's not right here. You need to let go of this stuff. And isn't that often the case when we come to Christ? Christ. That we have stuff that we haven't dealt with, that we need to let go of. Wouldn't it be great if just when we when we believed and we we got saved, if all of our our issues from our past life went away. But so often that's not the case, is it? Because we have sinned. We're holding on to stuff. There's stuff that happened to us when we were kids or when we were adults or whenever. And this man had issues. He was poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Let me just say a word about bitterness here. If there's any bitterness going on within you today, and bitterness can be expressed with, through any number of means, through anger, through shortness, through self-centeredness. If you have those things going on in your life, these are things you have to deal with. If you don't, it will eat you up from the inside out, and it will grieve and quench the work of the Spirit in your life if we have unconfessed sin, if we have things that we're dealing with. You might say, but you don't understand. These weren't my fault. These were things other people did to me. Maybe it was abuse. Maybe it was something horrendous that someone did to you. It's under the blood. God has forgiven you for your part in it, if you even had a part in it. But also, God wants to forgive them and Remember, he wants to forgive others through us. And we are told that God wants to use us to spread his grace and his love and his mercy. He can't do that if we're clogged up or if we're poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. So notice here, Peter said in verse 22, to repent of this, your wickedness. So remember the word repent is a word that is a direction word. Turn from the direction you're going and the things you're doing and the things you're holding on to and let them go and walk 180 degrees in a different direction. Verse 24, Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. If someone said that to me, I would pray for them. But also I would remind them, I can't repent for you. You have to repent for you. You have to do business with the Lord. Then Simon answered and said, uh, pray for me. So when they had testified, verse 25, and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. So we are not told from this point forward what happened with Simon. It was interesting reading and preparing for this, the number of people who wanted to debate was Simon truly saved or not. How can we know? We aren't told. But I think this story is in here for a reason. It's for a purpose. And, and whether Simon was truly saved or not, God will sort that out. But I think this is one of the first times we see an example of a person. And it says he believed. And it says he got baptized. We see An example of a person where there was something going on, there was something impeding the life of God in that person's life, and that something was sin, it was bitterness, it was iniquity, and God is calling that out in us this morning. Perhaps there's something in my life or in yours that is stopping up, if you will, the flow of the Spirit, is the grieving and the quenching of the Spirit that we read about in both the book of Ephesians and the book of 1 Thessalonians. Maybe he wants to do more in and through our lives. But in order to get there, we have to repent. Well, we come to this next section here, which is one of the most amazing sections, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Verse 26, now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. So the first time Philip went to Samaria, he just went, the spirit must have led him. He was a spirit-filled man. Now an angel of the Lord speaks to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he's leaving any sort of civilization. He's just heading out by himself into the wilderness. So he arose and went. Verse 27. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace the queen of the Ethiopians who had charge." of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading Isaiah the prophet. So what do we know about this man, this Ethiopian eunuch? So he was under Candace the queen. It would appear to us that Candace the queen is her name. Candace is actually her title, not her name. She's the queen of the Ethiopians. We also learn that this man, is actually the treasurer, the secretary of the treasury of the the land of Ethiopia. So he is a very important, prominent man. We're also told that he's a eunuch, which if you don't know what that means, to put it in more, less palatable terms, he was castrated. So that he would be devoted to the service of the queen. So when this man went to Jerusalem to worship, He would not have been allowed to go into the temple because anyone who had been mutilated in such a way would not be allowed to go in. They could go no further than the court of the Gentiles. So this man probably went to Jerusalem and was met with disappointment that he couldn't go in and worship in the way that he wanted to. But he was wealthy enough to be able to acquire a scroll of the Old Testament, in particular a scroll of Isaiah. And in those days, a scroll like that, because remember, they didn't have Bibles like today. You couldn't go buy a paper Bible for 10 bucks in your local Christian bookstore. I mean, of course, today you can get them in Walmart. But in those days, if you wanted a copy of the scriptures, it would cost you dearly. There was no Amazon. So he had to travel over 2,000 miles from Ethiopia up to Jerusalem. And perhaps being disappointed as he got there to worship, he he at least walked away with a copy of the Scriptures. And so now as he's in his chariot going back down, it was probably at least a three-month, two- to three-month journey. As he's heading back, he's sitting in his chariot. Remember, now this man has his path and his life. He's sitting there. All these things have happened to him. He's reading Isaiah the prophet. And meanwhile, off to the side, God's speaking to this man, Philip. And he says, Philip, hurry up, hoof it, run, get down there. Get down there. And as he gets down there, he's coming. Verse 29, then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. So see again the pattern with which God leads. He just said, told to Philip, head down to Gaza. Where? Just go toward Gaza. So he goes. Verse 29, Then the Spirit said to Philip, See that chariot over there? Go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him, heard him reading the prophet Isaiah, and said, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. What an amazing thing. Do you understand what's happening here? How many of you In your car, say it was a convertible, you're driving down the street, sitting in the car, reading out loud. And how did he know? Because it was customary when people read that they read out loud. Not like often we sit here with our, you know, nothing going on, just quietly reading in in our mind. It was customary for them to read out loud. So as he came up, he heard this man reading. And then the Lord just makes it apparent, yeah, this is the guy and... Wow, what's he reading? He's reading Isaiah. He's not just reading Isaiah. He's reading Isaiah 53. Speaking of the suffering servant, a chapter that today the Jews call the forbidden chapter. You can't read Isaiah 53 in synagogue. And here's one of the things that jumps off the page to me like lightning. God cares about one. He loves one person. You remember when Jesus spoke the parable in Luke 15? What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found the sheep which was lost. And I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. This Ethiopian eunuch invites this man Philip into his convertible. And says, I don't know what I'm reading, can you help me? Pretty random, right? You look around, nobody else in the desert, just the man and his chariot. And the place in the scripture which he read was this He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And in his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of some other man? Now, this is what we would call a divine appointment where God orchestrated this moment. Remember later in Acts 16 when when Paul the apostle and Silas, when, when they go to Philippi and then they're sitting in the Philippian jail at night and they're praising and singing to the Lord and then the Lord brings an earthquake and shakes the jail and the doors open and the chains fall off and the Philippian jailer wakes up and he thinks he's going to be put to death so he he runs into these men just not knowing what to do. And he heard them. He knew that God was with them. And what did he say in that moment? He said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? This is what you call a meatball, right? Just being served up for you. And that's what this man is doing here, this eunuch. And he says, Who did he, who's he speaking of? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him to me this speaks of the fact that no matter who we are hopefully if you've been in christ some period of time some number of years i hope you're reading your bible because this man philip was ready at that moment right there in isaiah 53 to begin teaching him about christ now isaiah 53 is about christ it's all about jesus So Philip, opening his mouth, began here at this scripture and preached Jesus to him. And as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? No no doubt as they were driving down the road and Philip's preaching Christ to him. And he starts in Isaiah and he probably works his way all the way down to, you know, somewhere in the New Testament, which hadn't been written yet, which was happening. And as he said, you know, if you believe in Jesus with all your heart and And that God resurrected him from the dead and that he died for your sins, you can be saved and you should be baptized in the name of Christ. And this man says, "Ah, see, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized right now? Don't you love that? Don't you love that zeal? That childlike faith? Then Philip said, just to double check, okay? If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and he says, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. Wow. A few minutes ago, he was sitting in the chariot by himself in the hot sun on a long journey back to Ethiopia. Now this crazy dude in the middle of nowhere comes running up beside his chariot and says, hey, you need any help? Invites him in. And now this man is believing in Christ. So he commanded the chariot to stand still and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. Do you understand that most people believe in Christ not through some mass crusade evangelism event and we praise God for those. Most people believe in Christ because one person interacted with them. Because someone was faithful to pray for them. But because someone was faithful to open their mouth, put aside their fear, their fear of rejection, their fear of what might happen and just speak the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. You don't have to go to school for this. You memorize John three sixteen. You're good. Now it's good to know more, but just to be able to tell people about Jesus. And here's the thing: these people were speaking to other people about their experience with Christ. They were speaking the truth, but the truth was also, you know, they could they were saying, you know, hey, this is what I've experienced. When Jesus came into my life, there was this sense of my sins being forgiven. And I'm forever grateful, and I know my name is written in the book of life, and I know I'm going to be in heaven with Christ one day. They could just say that. Can you say that? I transcribed this from someone else, so it's going to be a little choppy, but I want to share it with you, and I think it sort of points to this process and hopefully will encourage you as it encouraged me. In the 1860s, a man in Chicago named Mr. Kimball had a burden for one of the kids in his Sunday school class. The kid worked at a shoe store, so Mr. Kimball, who couldn't get this off of his heart, goes into the shoe store to buy, you know, a pair of shoes from the kid, and he witnesses to the kid. The kid knows him from Sunday school, and the kid believed. He leads the kid to Christ, and that little boy's name was D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody grew up, and because of the ministry of Mr. Kimball and his faithfulness, he affects two continents. If you know anything about the life of D.L. Moody, if you don't, just Google him, get a book. There's plenty of books about him. D.L. Moody, because of this one faithful man, is now out. He becomes an evangelist, and he's preaching all over these two continents, the, the U.S. and others, Europe. And as he was preaching through Europe, particularly through England, One day he's preaching and this man named F.B. Meyer comes and hears him. F.B. Moody, excuse me, F.B. Moody, F.B. Meyer was listening to Moody and was so deeply touched and he heard the stories of how his Sunday school teacher had uh, spoken uh, to him and and determined that he wanted to lead all of the kids in his Sunday school class to Christ. Now this man F.B. Meyer becomes A believer. F.B. Meyer was a great preacher all throughout England and led many, many people to Christ. D.L. Moody had this ministry all the way back in Chicago. He had a kids' ministry and he would go out with a bus or whatever he could muster up and pick up street kids all over the city. And there were many kids there who were crazy and out of order and all of that. But this kids' ministry for some reason, gained notoriety. And even Abraham Lincoln heard of this kids ministry going on in the heart of Chicago. And he even went to see the ministry, to see D.L. Moody, to see how he was ministering to the children. So meanwhile, back in Europe, F.B. Meyer is preaching. And there was a young boy that he led to Christ. His name was Wilbur Chapman. Wilbur Chapman became another famous evangelist throughout that era and throughout that region, and he led multitudes to Christ. And one of the people that Wilbur Chapman affected was a little boy named Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday got saved under this man's ministry. He then began to emulate what he had learned from his mentor, Wilbur Chapman, and he preached. And he just went out and he just talked to anybody who would listen. He came to the United States and was preaching and ended up in the place called North Carolina. Great state of North Carolina where I'm from. And he heard Billy Sunday preaching. Who? A young man, a 16-year-old man who was angry at God. And he came in and he sat down as Billy Sunday was preaching and ran out on the first night of the the service they would of course in the south do these revival weeks and have featured speakers and so second night this man comes in same thing leaves angrily unhappy about what was happening by the end of the week this tall 16 year old lanky boy walks forward whose name was billy graham billy graham gives his life to jesus christ and what do we need to say about him This is a man whom, as far as I know today, no one else in the world has led more people to Christ singularly that we're aware of than Billy Graham. He had given his life to Christ. What does God want to do with one person that we might speak to? One person. Philip left a revival going on in the city of Samaria because the the angel told him to. Ministry was bustling, right? People getting saved, baptizing people. Hey, leave all this and head down to the desert. He does that. What does God do? He saves this Ethiopian eunuch. Do we know for sure what happened with this eunuch's life? We don't, but doesn't it seem logical that God would have saved him for a purpose and this man became his man down to Ethiopia. and That God began a work down in the Ethiopia because of this crazy little event. You see, every soul is significant to God. I know most believers are afraid to talk about Jesus. But do you understand what's at stake here? People's souls. I'm not trying to guilt you. I'm just trying to let you know that this is important to God and it should be important to us. We talk sometimes about setting goals. Here's something to consider. What if everyone who calls this church their home just prayed and said, Lord, give me an opportunity to talk to someone about Christ. And Lord, would you allow me just this year, in 2022, use me to lead one person to Christ? You can see easily, do the math, how if that were to happen, how, you know, it's the number of, number of people, not so much as an act of growing this church, but of growing his church, how that would affect the kingdom of God. And then if we keep praying that and we pray that God would use those people, so, you know, 10 becomes 20 and 20 becomes 40 and all of that. And isn't that how God works? In fact, before I close here, I meant to put this in my notes and I forgot. Second Timothy chapter 2, there is an amazing verse that says essentially the same thing. Second Timothy chapter 2. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things you have heard from me among many witnesses. Commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You see, what we've been given was not intended to be hoarded. God gave it to us that we might pass it on. Verse 39, so when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. Well, didn't even want Philip to disciple the guy. Apparently the Lord had that under control. He's got a scroll of Isaiah. If he learns that, he'll be doing pretty well. But as Philip, Philip, verse 40, was found at Azotus, some 20 or so miles away. So all of a sudden, the Lord just translates Philip, takes him up to another place. You know, he didn't have to run that time. And passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. So he just said, okay, Lord, apparently you've sent me in Azotus. And for whatever reason, he just went from Azotus to Caesarea. The next time we run into Philip, he'll be in Caesarea. He'll have a family. And he'll have four daughters who are prophetesses who are filled with the Spirit. What an amazing thing. We talked a few weeks ago about Stephen and we called the time together, be like Stephen. Today, be like Philip. God wants to use us if we're willing. So let's uh, just bow our hearts now and come to the Lord's table. And just let the Lord minister to us. Lord, thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for your word. Lord, I hope and pray that nothing here has made any of us feel like guilty or weighed down, but more than anything, Lord, perhaps just convicted. And that we would open our hearts to you, Lord, and deal with our sin. And just get things out in the open and allow you to do in us what you wanted to do in those first century believers, which was just use them to tell others about Jesus. Lord, we hope and pray it doesn't come to persecution and scattering to make that happen. But if it does, we pray that we would be faithful. More importantly, we would be faithful now, where we are. Lord, open our hearts this morning. Fill us with your Spirit. And for any Lord who may not have ever trusted you, we just ask that this might be their moment, that they would believe in Jesus. Come to you, receive your forgiveness. Believe that you are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. And turn from their current ways and turn to your ways. And we don't even know what that means yet, Lord, but they, they've got to, to do it, We just like we had to do it. And yet I dare say that none of us here this morning who believe in you would say, I want to go back. May it never be. Lord, I don't want to go back to that. I don't want to go back to the previous way of life, whatever it was, drinking and partying and sleeping around and cursing and being angry and whatever it was, Lord. We, We want that to be in the past. Now we're just grateful to be under the blood. Lord, would you do in our lives all these things we've read today and more. And as we come to the table this morning, would you bless us? In Jesus' name, amen.